Hi, I'm your host, Brittany Spence, and this is In the Face of Illness. We are a podcast committed to cultivating a greater understanding of the many resources available for families facing childhood illness, because we believe this is a vital topic of conversation, not only for families in the throes of the fight, but for everyone. Ultimately, we are here to offer hope in the face of illness. Katie Hoskins has been a certified child life specialist for six years with previous clinical experience at Labonder Children's Hospital out of Memphis, Tennessee, and Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital out of Nashville, Tennessee. She has served a wide variety of patient populations and units, most recently in the neonatal care intensive care unit. Katie has spent the last few years focusing on the developmental needs of hospitalized infants and their siblings particularly through prenatal psychosocial support in maternal fetal medicine and helping parents navigate siblings' needs amidst COVID visitation restrictions. Katie is a graduate of Tennessee Tech University and lives in Washington State with her husband, daughter, and two dogs. Welcome, Katie. We're glad to have you on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, So Katie is joining us out of Washington, um, and we're so excited to have her. So sometimes, we haven't said this in the past, but sometimes, um, you know, when we do these virtually, they can sound a little bit different, um, but uh, hopefully it'll be just fine. So we're glad she's here with us to talk to us. And so we're really today going to talk about, um, in particular, one of the things that we're really passionate about is siblings. And, you know, we talk a lot in the Four Spence Fund that we want to be able to really make sure that the whole family is cared for and that the whole family is taken care of. So why don't we start a little bit about your past roles and jobs within Le Bonner and Monroe Carroll? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my child life career off in 2015. Um, my first job was in the emergency department at Le Bonner Children's Hospital in Memphis. Um, and I think the majority of the care that I did for siblings in that space was um, a lot of normalization. If siblings were coming to the emergency department with um, an ill or injured sibling, it was a lot of making sure that um, their anxiety was staying low and making sure that they had age-appropriate activities um, and getting age-appropriate information to kind of make it uh, a less stressful experience for them. Sometimes, unfortunately, uh, siblings would be coming in together, maybe through a car accident or some other uh, trauma that they were both involved in. And that could sometimes get a little bit more complex because not only are we trying to, you know, focus on on the, the injured or ill child, but also make sure that they are coping well and understanding with what's going on you know, maybe with their brother and sister next door who are also in that accident. Um, so child life specialists definitely help navigate some of those uh, tricky conversations with siblings in that space. Um, I was in the emergency department for about a year, and then I moved up to the um, uh, neurology floor where a lot of patients that I worked with were there for um, chronic epilepsy or new brain tumor diagnoses, new cancer diagnoses. So there was a lot of education involved with siblings who were also going to have a huge transition maybe if their older brother or sister or younger brother or sister were going to start uh, cancer treatment, were going to undergo a major surgery, um, anything like that. When I left Le Bonner, um, I went to uh, Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt, 
and I served in the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU, as you said. And that's really where um, my work kind of imploded with all of the sibling needs because there were definitely a lot of uh, developmental needs that I addressed with the infants that were hospitalized because they were there for so long. They were going through painful procedures and things like that. But really, a lot of my work centered around the brothers and sisters who needed help understanding why their baby, their new baby brother or sister was not coming home from the hospital. Um, sometimes those conversations were, um, there was some preparation for those conversations because maybe the parents knew prenatally that their baby was going to have to be in the hospital for a while, but other times maybe there was a unexpected or preterm labor and then all of a sudden this narrative that we've been, you know, preparing brothers or sisters for about their new baby brother or sister coming home from the hospital is suddenly no more because they um, are sick or there was a traumatic birth or something like that. Um, so then, of course, when COVID hit, that made things pretty difficult as far as um, siblings being able to come to the bedside for visits, um, being able to feel a little bit more involved in their baby brother or sister's care. So we definitely had to get creative as far as, um, you know, virtual visits, um, FaceTiming, uh, helping parents navigate those difficult conversations from afar. A lot of it was really coaching the parents on the language to use and, um, you know, common uh, common misconceptions, common questions, depending on the age of their other child at home. Um, and things like that. So um, I've definitely, I've seen a, a large gamut of supporting siblings in this space. Yeah. Um, well, and, and with that, within the roles where you interacted with the siblings, how do you think, what are some big points or big ways that you've seen the impact of childhood illness really affect siblings? It's a major disruption to several aspects of their life. Um, it can be a disruption developmentally, um, emotionally. It can definitely cause some regression in their development. I talk with parents a lot about how it's not uncommon to um, see some regressive behaviors if, you know, their normal life and routine is suddenly turned upside down because they have uh, they're separated from their parents or they have new caregivers, new routines. Um, it's not uncommon to see behavioral changes, um, developmental regression, such as bedwetting or changes in appetite and things like that. Um, so I really, I really encourage parents to pay attention to specific things, especially some red flags where that may require a little bit more help, but also just letting the parents know what is I call it the abnormal normal, <laughs> things to not be super concerned about, but to let them know that they need to keep an eye on it. Um, and I think it also kind of depends on if the child who's ill or injured has been sick for a very long time, like has the sibling only known them to be a frequent flyer in the hospital or doctor's offices? Um, was the child diagnosed before their younger brother or sister came along? Or the opposite, it, um, if they have a younger sibling who was born healthy, normal, then all of a sudden when they were two or three started having more hospital visits, doctor visits, surgeries, depending on their diagnosis, um, that can also cause more disruption because it's a completely new way of life for them. Yeah. Um, and, and what are some of the, I mean, you definitely talked some on the impact. I mean, what are 
you know, from that, what are some of the struggles? I mean, I would imagine grades, if they're, you know, in school that you start to see, you know, potential for schoolwork struggling some, or, um, you know, I think you said some behavioral issues, or maybe even reverting back, you know, to a, a, a younger maturity level or things that the, the way they're reacting to things. Um, and I just, I know that the parents, the caregivers are already so exhausted because they're often splitting their time, you know, between the child that's in the hospital sick and their children at home, maybe even splitting it with work, you know, if they have a spouse. I mean, there's just so many aspects that's pulling them. How would you encourage those caregivers? What would be some ways that you would encourage the caregivers, you know, to be kind of the the best they could be to all of those different avenues or roles that they're playing? You know, it's, I I feel like when I worked with these families, I was able to empathize with them on all the different things that they're trying to focus on in their life. But after having a child of my own, I just can't imagine having to split my attention between a child ill in the hospital um, and then a child at home. And I think I think one of the the biggest things that I encourage parents to do um, is even though they may not want to leave their child at the hospital, no parent wants to do that, it's very important for the healthy child at home to still get some one-on-one time. And I would always encourage parents, even if it was hard, um, to carve out some time during the week to do a normal activity that they did maybe, you know, before baby brother or sister was born or before brother or sister got sick and had to be in the hospital, whether that's a movie night, whether that's an ice cream date, whether that's going to the park, just really carving out some intentional, meaningful time with um, the child at home. And again, I know that that can be really difficult, but I think that that helps the entire family system overall because the child at home is going to feel seen and valued even amidst all of the chaos going on. And the parent is going to feel less guilty for not being able to spend time with that child if they know that they're being, they're able to devote a couple hours each week to them. Um, Mm -hmm. It's definitely not ideal, but, you know, I always encourage parents in this situation, um, this is temporary, we hope. Um, it may be a long temporary, but this is this is the best that we can do for now, and it's better than nothing. Um, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, any type of um, activities to connect the family from far away. I know, especially during COVID times when we couldn't have siblings come to the hospital, um, I would get creative sometime with parents as far as activities that we would normally give the brothers or sisters when they came to bedside. Uh, And that could include medical play activities that could include uh, normal arts and crafts. Um, If the sibling and the child in the hospital were both old enough to complete an activity on their own, um, I would maybe give one set of uh, craft materials to the patient and then one set of craft materials to the parent to take home to the sibling so that even though they weren't doing that craft together at the bedside like we might normally do, they were still feeling connected because they were doing the same activity. And maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, they were able to FaceTime and do it and things like that. Um, So it can can be tricky for sure. Um, And as I've mentioned, you know, visitation restrictions 
because of COVID and even, you know, there are some hospitals that probably restrict uh, sibling visitation anyways, and they definitely need that extra support. And any families who are listening who have child life specialists employed at their institution that their child is receiving treatment at, I would encourage them to reach out to the child life department um, and see if they can be of any assistance in helping get some resources uh, to help just keep the connection between the patient and the sibling strong. Yeah, I think that's definitely great advice. What are what are some ways that you have found that others can show love and support to siblings while their brother or sister is in the hospital? What are some tangible, you know, physical support? What's some emotional support? What are some actual concrete ways that you've seen have been a really big help? So one of my favorite things to encourage parents to do after they had a new baby uh, brother or sister. I think, you know, if a baby is born and goes home, this is a, this is helpful, but having a gift from the baby um, or the sibling in the hospital, um, if they're old enough to pick one out um, for the sibling at home, I think that that really helps them feel um, important um, and seen. I think that, um, you know, any type, like I, like I mentioned before, any special one-on-one time that, um, parents or other family members or friends can spend with the sibling can be very beneficial. And then, um, of course, meals, transportation, things like that to kind of help lighten the load for the parents who are trying to split their time between uh, two or more children in different locations, I think can be very beneficial. As far as And then emotionally, too, just making sure that that child feels like the line of communication between them and the parent or other trusted grown-up is open so that if they have any questions or any concern, they feel like they have a safe place to express those feelings. And then offering opportunities for choice and control can seem like such a small thing, but it really makes a huge impact on um, a child's overall development as far as how they're coping with a stressful event if they have the opportunity to choose little things. So that can be like, it can be as simple as, um, you know, do you want to eat breakfast at the table today or do you want to watch cartoons before before school? Just something simple like that can be very beneficial for siblings um, who are having having a hard time adjusting to this new normal of having a brother or sister in the hospital. Yeah. I think one of the things, too, is, you know, to the caregivers who are listening, you know, to make sure you also have people really who are in your corner helping you, you know, trusting people, whether that's we did a podcast uh, over Valentine's that was, you know, tangible ways that you can show love to others. And, you know, some of the things that we talked about is really when a family has a child in the hospital, but they have other children, they feel so torn and so One of the big ways you can support them, you know, not a lot can really, you know, things can be done, but in all honesty, it's so hard to be able to really know exactly how to help the child that's in the hospital. You know, there can be some care bags and there can be some activities given to them. There can be, you know, sports teams or classes can, you know, draw and they can put it up on the wall. But really, one of the ways that I think you can best support a family who has a sick child in the hospital is to really help with those children that are at home. Um, You know, if you have children that are on the same sports team, help pick up and take to the sports games, help them wash the uniforms, help them, you know, maybe say, hey, after the baseball game, I'm going to take them to get dinner and then bring them home. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make sure that they have their glove and ball. Oh, you know, 
the sports team just sent out a message saying, you know, we all needed this new thing. I'm going to pick it up when I pick up mine. Um, one of the best advices we were given of if you are someone that knows someone with a sick child is really find where you are kind of in the same lane with them to where your stories already, you know, intersect. And so same sports teams help with the sports team, you know, same classroom help bring the snack for that sibling, help pack the lunch for that sibling, you know, help get the stuff they need for the field trip. Or, you know, maybe on Thursdays you come over and you help work on spelling words with them or, um, but it would be such a blessing to the caregivers if you are helping with those healthy siblings that are at home, um, you know, babysitting, taking them for outings. Um, You know, we've talked about it on different podcasts where families have been on and said what a gift it was when, you know, so-and-so came and picked up my healthy child and took him to get ice cream and took him to the zoo and took him to do things and made them feel special. Obviously, we, we would like for you, the caregiver, to make sure that you also are giving time and energy and making that you know, special, whether that's reading with them in the bed or whether that's watching a favorite show with them or taking them to get something to eat at their favorite place, but having that special time so they can know that they're not forgotten and remembered. But also, caregivers, if you would also really lean on others, others want to help you. And so utilize them you know, in any way that they're willing and and let people help you, especially in regards to the siblings that are, you know, healthy and doing well, they need to be shown all the love and support as well. Absolutely. And I think one thing that really helps siblings feel more secure in these situations is if they have some type of consistency and routine, even if it's not totally similar to the routine that they had before their brother or sister was hospitalized or um, or diagnosed or injured. Even if that's, you know, knowing that you're going to be with grandparents on Tuesdays and Thursdays and you're going to be with a friend on the weekends and, you know, Aunt Mary is going to come help you with homework on Mondays and Wednesdays. So um, it definitely can take a lot of planning and and coordination, but I think that that little extra effort on the planning and coordination to maintain some type of stable routine and consistency for children um, who are having to cope with separation from parents and siblings can be very beneficial for everyone in the long run. And then parents or caregivers then know that their child's always going to be taken care of at those times. And then that in turn reduces their own stress and anxiety. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, some of the other things that I've seen child life specialists do that I think really help siblings is even in regards to using dolls, teddy bears, stuffed animals to, I guess, mimic what's going on with, you know, the sibling, whether that's, um, you know, explaining what the scar will look like afterwards or, you know, explaining what, you know, if, if the sibling's going to be getting a shunt, you know, what that would look like by using a doll or a, a teddy bear or whatever else. And obviously, you know, during the COVID restrictions that had to be done FaceTime, um, we're getting back to where families and visitors can come back into the hospital. And so hoping be able to, to be done bedside. But talk about that a little bit of how y'all use different avenues to try to explain to not only siblings, also caregivers, you know, something that they can expect, 
you know, if a, if a child gets taken into surgery, you know, the unknown can be so scary and so fearful. So talk about that a little bit, how y'all utilize different ways to combat that. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many um, surgeries I've performed on teddy bears or dolls to (laughs) help prepare siblings for medical equipment that they may see on their brother or sister, either at the hospital or when they come home. So child life specialists, you know, our foundation is in play for patients and siblings. And we use one particular kind of play called medical play um, that helps familiarize children with different medical equipment or devices that they may be using long-term. So when I worked in the emergency department, a lot of those kiddos coming in needed IVs for fluids or blood draws, et cetera. So I would bring in my big stuffed animal that already had an IV placed in it, as well as some of the materials like the tourniquet, the alcohol swab, you know, the tubing, things that they were going to see. And that kind of helps desensitize the equipment for the children so they know what to expect. And even if they're still scared, they have the opportunity to ask questions and feel a little bit more in control of their situation. And that's another opportunity where we can, you know, offer choices. Like, do you want to hold mom's hand for this procedure or do you want to watch a show on your iPad? So getting back to your your main question as far as using medical play and teaching with dolls for siblings, um, we def- I've definitely done that a lot at bedside before, especially when I worked in the NICU, having medical play kits um, that were actually blank cloth dolls that I would give the siblings with a marker so they could even draw the face on the medical, on the blank cloth doll. And that kind of let me assess, you know, is this child think their sibling um, is in pain? Do they think they're sad? Do they think they're happy? based on, you know, what they were expressing through their play. A lot of times if a child is receiving um, a G-tube, a surgically placed feeding tube in their abdomen um, or a tracheostomy in their throat, a lot of times I'll get with my nursing and friends in the engineering department to place a tracheotomy or a G-tube in a teddy bear or a doll so that parents can then take that home to siblings to kind of help prepare them and familiarize them with the new medical equipment that they're going to see on their sibling when they uh, either visit at the hospital or come home for the hospital. For children who are older, I encourage parents to find safe, appropriate ways for siblings to be involved in a child's care. And that could include, you know, holding the materials that a parent might need for a dressing change with a G-tube or the tracheostomy change and showing them that equipment on an item they're familiar with, such as a dollar stuffed animal, is the first step in helping them cope well with how life is going to look like when brother or sister comes home with this new medical equipment. It could even be something as simple as um, oxygen. A lot of times uh, the babies that I worked with in the hospital would go home with an oxygen tube or an NG tube and that I would coach parents on how to explain that piece of medical equipment to siblings and also let them know what they could do and what they couldn't do because of course we also want to keep the child who's coming home with these medical devices safe and we don't want sibling you know pulling off the uh, pulling off the oxygen tube or the G tube or anything. So it was also a good tool to kind of educate siblings on what their level of involvement could be with these different medical, this different medical equipment they might see on their sibling. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been, well, let's talk about this too. So every parent wants to protect, you know, their children and, and look out for their children and care for their children. And sometimes the way that they feel is best to do that is to not tell them what's going on you know, to 
not explain to the patient and or siblings, you know, the magnitude or what's happening or what's the diagnosis or, you know, what everything is. Um, I have found just in my own motherhood um, of raising children is that their minds, what they believe and make up is often worse than reality. Mm-hmm. If we don't sit down with them and tell them in an age appropriate way of what is going on, because they're listening, they're paying attention, and they're only getting bits and pieces because we're trying to, in our own way, protect them. And so maybe we're being secretive. Maybe we're saying it on a telephone call or we're, you know, we think we, we, we think they're not around or we're in a closet. And so they're getting bits and pieces and then they're creating their own scenario, which I have found is often worse than the scenario that's actually playing out. Um, and I, I even have an example of that when, um, our daughter was in, um, she was diagnosed with RSV in the flu when she was two and a half months old. And so, um, she had really taken kind of a a pretty bad turn while they were all still sleeping. My boys were still sleeping. And so I went on to the, to the doctor's office who was connected to, um, Le Bonner. And so he actually had me immediately walk, you know, there was a tunnel to the emergency department. So walked directly to the emergency department and they admitted her. And so the boys had gone from the night before kissing her, you know, saying goodnight to us and then waking up and we were gone. And then we were gone for the most part for seven full days. Mm -hmm. She was, um, uh, at that time only breastfed. And so I couldn't, uh, I couldn't leave her. And, um, came home, you know, she did well enough to come home, came home and somewhere down the road, a week or two, somewhere around there. Um, at the time, my four and a half year old said something to the point of that he thought she was going to die. And when I sat down with him and said, well, you know, buddy, let's talk about this. And he said, well, whenever you talked about forest, you would say, He became very sick. He went to the hospital and he died. And so in his four and a half year old mind, his baby sister became very sick, went to the hospital and she was going to die. He did not think she was going to come home. And it broke me as a mother to think about how what my four and a half year old had been thinking and imagining that week I was gone. Fast forward, she gets admitted again um, a couple of weeks later with non-RSV bronchiolitis. And during that stay, she had gone where she could um, take a bottle. And so I was like, I've got to go home. They've got to see me. But not only that, they've got to see her mm-hmm. and they've got to see that she's okay. And so we could bring them up there. Um, Labonner has a um, sibling playroom that the Forcements Fund actually sponsored. And so we actually were able to use that for our own sons. And so my boys came and went up to her room and saw her and we got to explain to them, this is what, you know, this is why she's got this, you know, cannula on her nose. And this is why she's got this on her chest. And this is why she's got this, this, and this, but look at her. Like she's, she, you know, she's smiling at you or, you know, or she's sleeping right now or whatever. And they got to be with us for a little while. And then we actually, they got to go and experience the sibling playroom, which I knew they were safe and they were loved on. And they thought it was amazing. They got to play with trains and play a video game. And, um, 
but it made such a difference. And then I also went home more. Uh, my husband and I switched more. Um, I let grandparents come up. I didn't feel like I had to be there 24 seven with my youngest. I knew how much my boys needed me too. They needed just me to put them down for bed, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of times they needed me to be at their church program. But that truly, because when Forrest was sick, we had no other children to worry about. It was just Forrest. And then when Maggie got sick, we had these two older boys. And it really transformed even my whole thought of just siblings and the impact on siblings. And then just that of their own little brains and what they're piecing together. And so really since then, we've had other really difficult things happen. My mother passed away a few years ago and it was pretty difficult walking that road of um, her being so sick. And so we chose to be very open and honest with our children um, and, and be very real of this is what's happening. You know, Gigi is very sick and, um, you know, we don't know if Gigi is going to be able to make it through this, but she's not in pain and she's okay. And, and then we've talked about it a lot since as well. And so at least from my experience, and I'd love to hear more about yours, that sometimes we are doing a disservice if we are trying to protect them so much that we're not letting them in mm -hmm. because then their little minds start to make up things on their own. What is your thoughts and feedback on that? I'm very glad you brought this up because that's probably one of the hardest conversations that I have to have with parents pertaining to siblings is how much information are we giving them? Um, as you said, our, our instinct is to protect our children from sad things or scary things. Words like cancer or, or die or death, we don't even want that, you know, within a hundred feet of our children's vocabulary. And so it is hard to, when I, when I meet a family or am touching base with them and assessing, you know, what does brother or sister know right now about um, the child who's in the hospital? And they say, well, uh, they think that they're in Vermont right now with their grandparents, or they think that, you know, they're, they're spending the night at school. And it's, it's so hard because I understand it's coming from a place of love and caring, but you're right. It, it ultimately is a disservice for many reasons. One, because as you said, siblings are going to pick up bits and pieces. And yes, you're exactly right. Oftentimes the narrative they create in their head ends up being so much worse than the truth. Even if it's a hard truth, um, the narrative that they can spend can be really, really hard, really, really much scarier. And then also, especially for older kids, if they hear if they hear the information from another source, um, because chances are they will, whether that's from a doctor or nurse who's in the room, if siblings visiting, whether that's from a grandparent or a family member who's on the phone, or even a parent of a friend of theirs at school, at some point they are going to hear information that they may not be getting from the people who need to be giving them that information, their parents. And that can also create a space of distrust between a child and their parents. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is the last thing that we need to pile on this plate of stressors that a family might be going through. Um, so that's how child life specialists can support parents in having those difficult conversations, whether that's, you know, something as, as far as, like you said, with your boys waking up 
and your daughter being gone as far as saying, you know, she got really sick in the night and, and she needed a doctor's help. And so that's why we had to, uh, we had to go to the hospital where the doctors could help her breathe. Or, you know, even the, even the sadder conversations of, you know, parents who don't want to tell a child at home that their brother or sister is dying and isn't going to Mm -hmm. be coming home. That, that is, is the hardest space and the most impossible space for a parent to ever have to walk, not only coping with the reality of living in a world without a child, but then also how am I going to support my living child and explain this to my living child? Mm-hmm. And that's where that, uh, that age, those age appropriate words come into play. You know, I encourage parents, sometimes they don't want to say the words, as I said, they don't want to say the words die or death or anything like that. Um, but it's important, especially for those like preschool age children, uh, to be extremely concrete. And sometimes that can mean sounding harsher than we want to sound. But those short, simple explanations of what it means to die um, is really going to help help drive home the understanding for that sibling at home. But then also talking about how it's okay to feel about that. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel mad. It's okay to have questions. And then that also kind of shapes their future experiences. As you were saying, you know, when your mother passed away, you know, your your children already kind of had a framework of what death is from from Sweet Forest. And I hate the thought of a child having to endure multiple losses during childhood. But unfortunately, you know, chances are they might. And so laying the foundation for them of um, honesty and trust and, you know, we never, we don't need to give a four-year-old all the ins and outs of um, their sibling dying of cancer. You know, we Mm want to give them the information that is pertinent to them. Um, And even children older than that, you know, they, I I encourage parents to kind of let older siblings kind of have a little more autonomy as far as the information they want to know. You know, do you, and giving them choices, again, going back to those choices, even the hard choices of, you know, do you do you want to visit your brother and sister right now? They're very, very sick and they may not be able to talk to you like they, they normally can, but do you want to go visit them? Do you want to draw a picture next to their bed? Do you want to listen to some music with them? Um, mm-hmm. You know, even if their brother or sister is in the hospital dying, we still want to make sure that siblings have the choice to be present for those final moments and even have some involvement. And that's kind of where memory making can also come into play with child life specialists who work with families and um, making sure that even though this is a situation that we don't want any family to walk through ever, we want to make sure that it's meaningful and special, as special as it can be to them. And I tell parents, including siblings in that giving siblings the choice to be included in that, in those really, really hard moments is, is crucial. Yeah. And even going back to, to each child is so different, you know, watching my three and how they um, reacted or um, how they handled or how they have walked the journey of, of losing their grandmother. It couldn't be more different. Mm -hmm. And even explaining to the three of them that it is okay 
that you grieve one way and you grieve another way and you grieve another way. Mm -hmm. And that there is no comparison because at least for my three, one really grieves more openly and more honestly and more, um, I don't want to say honestly, really more openly Mm -hmm. um, where one grieves pretty quietly, pretty privately um, and really doesn't love to sit in the emotions one of my boys likes to sit in the emotions, you know, and then I have another one that kind of one moment we could be visiting my mom in the, um, you know, at her, at her bench at the grave site. And, you know, one of mine could be off doing cartwheels and picking flowers one minute. And then two minutes later, she's crying. You, you just kind of don't know. And just knowing that one, as a parent, that's okay. It's okay if there's a child that wants to be by the bedside, holding the sibling's hand and being a part of every conversation, then it's okay if there's one that doesn't want to come mm-hmm. at all and doesn't want to see their sibling like that. There is no right or wrong. I think what you keep saying is so great, giving them a choice. Mm-hmm. So offering it to them, how much, you know, we'd like to have you up there, but if it's too much, that's okay. You know, we can tell you what's going on. We can FaceTime with you or we don't have to either, you know, um, and in parent mentoring, I've seen a gamut of it. I mean, I've seen ones where the sibling never left the side. They struggled even going to school or really functioning much because they just were so focused on the, the sick sibling. And then I've seen where, you know, they've continued to do all the sports and all the activities and it didn't look like their life had been changed that much. You know, later on, we figured out more of, you know, the dynamic of that. But, you know, just giving them the choice and then supporting siblings wherever they are. Absolutely. And in that journey and how they're taking it and how they're helping and how they're, how they're dealing with it. I think too, you know, counseling. Counseling is so important um, in the journey, you know, but getting a, an appropriate counselor to also work with them. I mean, I think child life is amazing to be able to work with them. Chaplains are amazing. Social work can sit with them. Um, you know, there's different aspects, different things that are offered in different hospitals, but um, also even outside sources of working with counselors who can help on a, on their level for them to be able to explain whether that is like you're saying play learn or um, you know that they draw pictures or they talk about it however that looks like um, I think that's also important oh absolutely and I always reinforce with parents too that you know I I am not a therapist I help children and families cope with you know the medical crisis that's in front of them in that space of a pediatric healthcare center. But that's where child life specialists will work very closely with our social work colleagues, our uh, spiritual care colleagues to make sure that, um, you know, any gaps that child life are not, child life specialists are not able to fill with those mental health needs that we're giving parents the resources. And that can sometimes be a misconception that I always clarify with parents is that we can absolutely give you, point you in the right direction of additional resources um, to help make sure that, you know, these, these red flags are being addressed appropriately. Yeah. Was there anything else that you, you know, would want us and our listeners to know um, in regards to supporting siblings or being the sibling or anything like that? Gosh, um, 
you know, I think just as hard as it is, just recognizing that whatever journey that you're on with your hospitalized child, unfortunately, there's also a unique journey going on with their brother or sister at home. They may not be the ones that are spending the night in the hospital or hooked up, hooked up to an IV or, um, you know, having life altering um, treatment or surgeries, but brothers and sisters definitely go through their own emotional journey um, in these situations. So um, everything you've said, as far as leaning on the support that's available to being open and honest with them, to making sure that you, you know, have that special one-on-one time with them, you know, for both the caregiver's mental health and the sibling's mental health to make sure that they still feel connected amidst all the chaos. You know, we, it's natural that brothers and sisters are not going to get the same amount of attention that a sick or injured child is, but we want to make sure that they know that emotionally parents, caregivers, other trusted adults are still available to talk with them, to be with them, to, you know, help them, help them still feel loved and important. And then also, you know, giving, giving them, if appropriate, just giving them roles to take on, you know, um, a lot of times siblings who come to the bedside or siblings who uh, have a brother or sister coming home, uh, maybe with a new diabetes diagnosis, you know, finding appropriate ways for them to be involved in their care. Again, if they want to be giving them the choice to be involved with their care can also help them um, feel needed and important in that sibling role. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your expertise and, um, you know, everything that you've learned through the years. And um, I know that you have been a gift to numerous families through the years at two different hospitals, but even in just your knowledge of working, I know that families have reached out to you in, in different ways as well. And so we're just thankful for that. So thanks for spending time with us today. And Uh, you know, sharing your knowledge of how siblings are affected and how we can support and love them and be the best caregiver or support system that we can be to siblings. So thanks for your time and we appreciate having you on. Thank you. I appreciate all you guys do for these patients and families too. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. We hope that this podcast is a resource for you and a source of support. Whether you are facing illness in your own family or want to walk beside other families dealing with childhood illness, we want the stories, wisdom, and knowledge shared to give you hope. Episodes will be released bi-weekly, so be sure to subscribe today.